0: I want to just pray one last time. One Again, not one last time. We'll pray a lot this morning, I have a feeling. <laughs> Father, again, I thank you so much for the men and the women who are investing and have invested their lives, their health, um, and their skills into fighting for our freedom. And I pray, Father, for those who are on the front lines right now and who are on the front lines of trying to get their lives back together after all that they've been through, all of that they have seen. We recognize that we live in a broken world. And we thank you so much for all that have gone ahead of us, all that people have sacrificed to give us what we take for granted. And I want to just take a moment right now to lift up our newly elected officials and the men and women that you've placed in authority in this country. We recognize that they lead only because you allow them to. And we submit to um, Paul's encouragement to Timothy to pray for those who are in positions of authority We pray that you would give them wisdom. We pray that you would give them discernment. We we entrust this nation. We entrust our lives to you, recognizing, Father, that you are ultimately our king. You are our God. And we salute you before we would ever salute this nation. But we thank you so much for allowing us to be born in a nation where we're free to worship you. We pray that that would never change. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. All right, can we bring the volume down just a little bit, please? Thank you. Um, Over the last couple of weeks, we have been exploring some of the theological underpinnings of our faith so that we can love God with all of our heart and soul, but also with all of our mind. So a couple of weeks ago, we explored the the question of how can we know that God really created all that we see? How can we know that he is the sustainer of life? How can we really know that? And then last week, we explored the question, how do we know that this Bible that we read, this Bible that we we suggest is normative for life, how can we say that this is God's inspired word that we should allow to be normative in, in our lives? And every time that we begin to talk about many of the questions that we have or the theological underpinnings of our faith, one question seems to percolate to the surface pretty quickly. How on earth, if we have a good God who loves us and who supposedly created all that there is, how can can there be evil in this world, right? Because God created a good world. Doesn't that make God the author of evil in some capacity? Put another way, we often ask, how can bad things happen to good people? If God is sovereign, if God is God, doesn't that make him at least a little bit responsible for all of the horrible, reprehensible things that have been done, sometimes even in his name? The wars, the murders, the rapes the selfishness, the brokenness that we see around us, doesn't God have some part in this? And how can we... (laughs) How can we understand a good, loving God in the midst of a broken world? And by the way, this isn't one of those kind of abstract, arbitrary questions. I think that all of us, in one way or another, have been impacted by evil, All of us have experienced evil. All of us have had our hearts broken by people that we trusted. All of us have experienced selfish acts done to us or done to those that we love. All of us have been touched by the evil of life in this broken world. And I'm not even talking just about stuff that's been done to us. I, I have to, when I start talking about this, I have to recognize, what about the evil in me? I mean, to quote Paul in Romans The the good things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, this stuff I keep finding myself doing over and over again. Who on earth can save a wretch like me? I want to... I I know you guys already know the answer to that question. Don't answer it. It was more rhetorical than anything. Like someone's like, Jesus, gosh, it's the answer. (laughs) It's Jesus, just in case you want to write that down. (sighs) I want to love my kids, even when they practice willful disobedience. And yet there is anger right there with me saying, punish. Speak the words in anger, what you're feeling right now. I want to honor my wife in every way. And yet lust is right there with me saying, take that second look. Go ahead and cultivate dissatisfaction in your marriage. I want to love Jesus and have an intimate relationship with him. And yet there are so many things that this world offers up and says, hey, don't bother spending time reading the Bible. Don't bother spending time cultivating your relationship with him. Check out the news. Play another round of Angry Birds You know, or something. For those of you who don't have a smartphone, don't get one. Major form of distraction. All that to say, we can talk about evil out there, but what about the evil that's within us? And how can, we, how, can, how can a good God and evil coexist in a world that he created? Why would God allow his children to struggle with such brokenness within ourselves that we can be agents of such destruction not only for ourselves, but for those that we love and for those maybe we don't even know. How can evil coexist with a good God? There are are a couple of things that we want to explore this morning. And the first, as Bob so eloquently just stated, the first reason that evil exists in God's good earth is because of free will. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to camp in Genesis 3 today. So, you can just turn there and stay there. And if you have a Bible, or if there's a Bible in front of you, I would encourage you to open it up, rather than just... That's why the the Scripture is not in the notes today. We're going to read. The first couple of chapters of Genesis paint a picture of God the Divine Artist calling all that we know, all that we see, into existence. And then over the course of two chapters, He molds and He shapes... And he, he sets the stars in the, in the sky and he puts the water in the ground and he moves the earth and he makes land and then he starts creating plants and animals and all of these things. And each time he finishes something, he kind of stands back and he looks at it and he goes, oh, that's good. And then he goes in and he does some more and he's just having fun over the course of six days, which you can take as literal days or, or, or could be interpreted as actual eons of time in which he's shaping and molding and creating because to God, a day is as 10,000 years, and 10,000 years is to a day. But the, the fact of the matter is, we see in Genesis 1 and 2, God creating everything that we know. And then He creates on the sixth day, a male and a female, man and woman, Adam and Eve, who both are image bearers of their God. Both of them are endowed with characteristics of God, creativity, identity, and free will. The ability to choose to either obey or disobey. The ability to choose to either love or to reject relationship. And then we see in, in Genesis chapter 3 the very real ramifications of men being endowed with free will. Let's read this and then we'll explore why God would have done this. Genesis chapter 3. Actually, I'm going to the first couple or the last verse of Genesis chapter 2. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were who they were without any sort of covering. They could be fully known and they had no shame whatsoever. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you may not eat fruit from that tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You must not even touch it, which, by the way, God didn't say you mustn't touch it. But this is the game of telephone where we we kind of interpret things the way that we want. So we can't eat it and we can't even touch the fruit of it or we will die. You won't surely die, said the serpent to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's holding out on you. Don't you see that? And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was not across the garden somewhere else. He was standing right next to her listening to this whole conversation and by his silence when she reached for the fruit was giving tacit approval to her actions. And so she gave some to her husband and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. Enter shame and guilt into God's good creation. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God. Enter the first fracture in the relationship between man and woman and their God. The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid from you. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? As if God doesn't already know the answer to this. But he's having a conversation with his boy. And Adam said, As as, as you know, the, the, the nice head of his household that he is and taking responsibility. The woman you gave me. She made me do it. She gave it to me. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman, equally willing to take full blame. The serpent, he made me do it. Okay? And so all of a sudden, in God's good creation, we see shame and guilt enter in and the need to hide. And then all of a sudden, we see the man separated from his creator, a fracture in their relationship. And then we see discord beginning to be sown into their own marriage, into their own union and unity. Now I have to ask the question, why on earth would God even put the tree in the middle of the garden? I mean, doesn't he realize? You say, I put anything on the floor in front of my son and say, don't touch it. What's he going to do? <laughs> uh huh, Because he's his father's son. Right, So he's going to go over and he's going to touch it immediately because he's not supposed to. Didn't God realize that by putting a tree in the garden and saying, this one's off limits, he was making it wide open for Adam and Eve to sin? Why would he choose to do that? Because he's God. He knows the ramifications of our choices. Why would he do that? Why would he allow there to be a choice Obedience or sin, acceptance of God's leadership, trust in his goodness or rejection and questioning his goodness and disobedience. Why don't you come up and teach today? You honestly, you you got all the answers. You just come and stand next to me and you fill in the blanks. I love you, Bobby. It's like you get gold stars all over. He's like, you're you're like my Jiminy Cricket. Honestly, I'm like, oh, train of thought. Where am I going? And Bob's like, here's where you're going. Love him. No, don't apologize. Just don't do it again. I did ask a question, and he's going to answer the question. I'm having rhetorical conversations with myself and Bob. So, why put the tree there? Why give freedom of choice? Let me ask, or let me answer that one question with another question. What does God want from us more than anything else? Okay, relationship, trust, love. Let me ask this question. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, how did he respond Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. With all of your being, with everything in you, love God. Why? Because God created everything. God created us for relationship. God created us to have a loving, genuine, authentic relationship with him. And you cannot have a genuine, authentic relationship with somebody unless there is the choice to opt in. Let me give you this example. If I had a computer, and let's say I had any sort of IT skills, I'm Mark Strachan for just a moment, and I can can actually code this computer to do whatever I want it to do. And I make this computer, every time I turn it on, it says, Good morning, Eric. I love you. Other than stoking my ego, would you say that that computer has the ability to genuinely love me? Would you say that its words carry any sort of meaning whatsoever when it says, Good morning, Eric. I love you. Does that mean anything to me? Probably not. There's a reason why every time my boy runs up to me and tackles me, because he doesn't know how to just hug gently, he tackles, throws his arms around me and plants a wet, sloppy kiss on me. There's a reason why that carries value to me as his daddy. Because I know he could just as easily turn his back and not have, want, have nothing to do with me and go plant that kiss on his mommy instead because he prefers her. And he's done that. I've experienced that. And as a daddy, I'm like, just, can I have one too? He's, no. Which is why when he does it, and does it without being coaxed into it, but chooses to do it, it carries value. Because he has chosen to love me. We cannot have relationship without the freedom to choose not to have relationship. Love is not love unless it is freely chosen. Does that make sense? You guys following this? So God, in order to have genuine, authentic relationship with us, had to give us the choice... To do otherwise. Otherwise, we're not ha- he's not having a relationship. He has programmed a nice little fun world. You know, he's got his own, it's a small world that he just goes through and all these little automatons are doing their thing. We love you. We worship you. And it means nothing. And it gets old. But there's a dark side to choice, isn't there? Because just as much as we're able to choose to love, we're also... Capable of rejecting. Just as much as we are capable of obeying, we're just as capable of disobeying. And so much of the pain that has been caused in our world has been caused by our ability to act out on our freedom. And I will be the first to say, I know that there are things that God would want me to do that I have chosen not to do. There are moments when I've heard him say, don't walk down this path. You don't want to go there. And yet I have chosen to walk down that path anyway. And he was right. You're darn right. I should have listened. So why is there evil in this world? Well, at least one part of the reason is because we have free will and it's not something lightly given. It is important for our relationship with God that we have the ability to choose, but that's not the whole story. Because in Genesis chapter 3, we also see that there's another personality, another person that's involved in this whole thing. Who is it that initially sows the question, is God really good? Does God really have your best interest in mind when he says, don't touch that tree? He's holding out on you. Who's saying that? Satan, we have the serpent who is an archetype for Satan. And throughout Scripture, we see this picture of the fact that we have a spiritual enemy. Now I say spiritual because we may not be able to see him, but he is a created being. He is not equal to God. He doesn't have the power. He is not the creator that God is. He was a created being. He is finite. But we read in scripture that he was higher than most of the other, all of the other beings. That God created. He was created with an unbelievable capacity to worship and do good. But with a high capacity to do good. When he chose to go the other way. And to try to usurp God's authority. And take upon himself the crown that belongs only to God. He also has an unbelievable capacity to do harm. And when he attempted to overthrow God. And usurp the throne. And he was cast out of heaven. We read this in Revelation chapter 12. He then turned around and declared war on his creator and says, I, from now until the end of time, will focus my energies on destroying that which you've called good. And we see our enemy, the serpent, going to make war on the children of God. And we read in scripture things like, be careful because your enemy, the devil, Prowls around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And yet, so often I think we read that and just kind of write it off as metaphorical. Or we read things like "Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand against your enemy's attacks." And we go, "Yeah, that, that's cute," and then we move on with our day. And we don't realize that when we say yes. To Jesus Christ, I want to be a part of your family. I accept the gift of your sacrifice for me. And we say yes to him. We paint a giant target on our back. And we declare ourselves to be a member of the kingdom of heaven, even though we reside in this broken, fallen world where we have basically enemy-occupied territory. And then we wonder why we're getting shot at. I don't think that the men who got off of those those troop carriers on D-Day when they stormed the beaches of Normandy, they weren't shocked when the, the doors opened and suddenly bullets were flying and people were getting hit left and right. They weren't surprised that there were people out to kill them. They recognized that they were at war. Why do we get surprised When we say, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord and we're going to dedicate our lives to you, God. When all of a sudden we start seeing things spin out of control and the anger and the friction that we feel between our spouse and or between our children starts to intensify. Why do we get surprised when we say, you know what? I am not going to walk down this path of secret sin any longer. I'm done with it. And suddenly we feel the temptation begin to intensify. Why is that a surprise to us? We are at war whether we choose to accept it or not. And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a target on your back. And we can take solace in the fact that greater is he that's in us than is in the world. And we can take solace in the fact that we are sons and daughters of the living God, but we're still at war. And there are still going to be people who are wounded, we are still going to be wounded. And sometimes we're going to be the unwitting people who do the wounding as well. So why is there evil in the world? Because we have free will. We have the ability to choose to disobey our God's will because we have a very real spiritual enemy who's looking to take us down. But that's not the whole picture either because God is still God he is still sovereign powerful able to alter the course of history so we need to at least address god's role in this and i'm not going to be able to adequately adequately in the next couple of minutes i'm not going to be able to adequately answer this full question but i will say this first off god is not and we know this from scripture god is not the author of evil god is not the author of temptation that's James 1. We know that God does not tempt, but we are tempted when our own evil thoughts entice us and drag us into sin and sin when it is full born gives birth to death. However, God has a part. And I want us to point at Genesis chapter 3 for a second because I, again, this is not going to adequately answer the full question. But God, in some way or another, allows evil to exist for a time. We read in Revelation when that time will come to a close and he'll make sure that every eye is dry. There are no more tears, no more pain, no more death. But for now, we live in the in-between time where the enemy is still free to roam and where our flesh still, in a lot of ways, holds sway over us. But in Genesis chapter 3, after the man and woman confess to the fact that they have indeed eaten the fruit, they have in fact disobeyed because they listened to their enemy. God calls down a couple of curses on them. You go, okay, there's the punitive, wrathful, old school, Old Testament God that we're familiar with, right? Because he hasn't, Jesus hasn't been born yet and so he becomes happy God. He's still the angry God, right? Of the Old Testament, And so he calls down these curses. We're going to read them and then we're going to assess what they really are doing and what God is doing in the process of bringing them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. And all the women said, Thank you, Eve. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, we might read that in the English language and think that just means that Eve just wants to, to, to be close to him and hug him. But what that desire means is the same in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain's, God warns Cain, be careful, because the enemy desires to have you. It's, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you. That term, that word desire literally means you will want to usurp your husband's role. You will want to domineer. You will want to have control over him, whether it's through manipulation or whatever. You will attempt to take control over your husband and he will rule or domineer over you. In that moment, God is cursing the the marriage relationship, almost inviting fractures into it. We'll address why he's doing that in just a moment. And to the man, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate of the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat of the plants of the field. By your, the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For to dust or for dust you are and to dust you will return. So we got, see God cursing for Eve, her, her role is, is bringing children into this world and then her role as a spouse to a husband in the, that marriage relationship. And to the man, we see God cursing the work of his hands. We go, why? Why is he being so punitive? And may I simply suggest that in this process of cursing, God is not being punitive so much. This is not God's wrath. This is God's mercy. And here's why. Because, generally speaking, women tend to find so much of their identity, again, generally speaking, through the relationships of of motherhood and the relationships of, of the family. And men tend, typically, to find so much of our identity through the work of our hands, what we do. It's almost as if God is saying those things that you will look to for your identity, those things that you will look to to complete yourself. I'm going to frustrate them. They will no longer be satisfying. They will no longer be able to fill you up. It's almost as if I'm carving out a God-shaped hole within you. So no matter how many kids you have, no matter how hard you try, no matter how close you are in your marriage, no matter how much work you get done, it'll never be enough. You will never be content. You will never be complete. There is a God-shaped hole that can only be filled by me. I'm doing this out of mercy because you don't realize it. But comfort in this world is not the greatest good. I am willing to allow you to endure difficulty and trial because I recognize that there is something far greater than the momentary pleasures and contentment of this world. I am thinking in terms of eternity. The greatest good is relationship with me. And I am not willing to allow you to settle for these momentary things and completely miss eternity. So I am going to create some dissatisfaction in the core areas where you will normally look for your identity. I'm going to create dissatisfaction. So you will be left hungering for something more that only I can fill. And in so doing, he creates within us a tendency to want to move towards him, to find our fulfillment in him. Does that make sense? Again, this does not completely satisfy the question of why is there brokenness? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? but at least in one way. We can say that God was not simply the wrathful, angry God that's punishing. He is a loving God who so desperately desires relationship with us that he's willing to allow us to feel dissatisfaction in the work of our hands. So they can only be filled by him. One last thought. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I find solace in the knowledge and why don't you turn it with me to Hebrews, chapter four for a second? I find solace in the fact that as much as this world is broken and as much as we feel pain, we don't serve a God who is immune to it. We don't serve a God who has never experienced it himself in Hebrews, which is way at the other end of the Bible. Chapter four: We're told this about Jesus. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Remember, Jesus Christ took on the, the flesh and the frailty of humanity. He walked amongst us. He experienced both the joys and the sorrows of life. He's able to identify with every feeling that we feel because he too took on humanity. And he was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not give in to that sin so that he could be that perfect atoning sacrifice for us. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can approach Jesus Christ because he is a compassionate understanding high priest. And hold on one second because I've got a little bit of a lengthy quote that I'm going to finish with and then we're done and they can go ahead and start worshiping, all right? Bob, you want to join him? (laughs) You're just picking fights up here. I'm sorry. I'm just an angry USC fan right now. Notre Dame is looking like a better team. So sad. Okay, I'm going to close with this. This is from John Stott. He's a theologian, he's a pastor, and he's an author. And he says this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed. The ghost of a smile playing around his mouth. A remote look in his face, detached from the agonies of this world. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in, in, in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet. Back lacerated. Limbs wrenched. Brow bleeding from thorn pricks. Mouth dry and intolerably thirsty. Plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood. Tears and death. He suffered for us. And our sufferings became more manageable in light of this. There's still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark. The cross that symbolizes divine suffering. We do not have a high priest. We do not have a Lord and Savior who is unable to sympathize with the brokenness that we experience. He's experienced every bit of it. And because of that, we can come boldly before Him, washed by His blood, and just say, Help me. I'm tired. Help me, I'm broken. I hate the things that I do. What a wretched man, what a wretched woman I am. Who can save me from this life of sin that's within me? And it's only through Jesus Christ, only through the cross. And so we thank you, Father, for the cross. We thank you that you did not sit passively by and watch your good creation spin horribly out of control but you have entered into your good creation because you loved us so much in order to redeem your creation. And for that, we thank you. And we just want to worship now out of gratitude for the cross. Jesus, in your name, amen.